it's hard to be a crusader for the people if you don't like the people. Welcome, friends, to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Birkel, and I'm right now trying to get Paul to pick up the Zoom call so we can get this show on the road. And until then, uh, until he zooms right in, I should mention that this is the third full week of September 2021. We're covering the big stories of the week, some of which maybe most of which have appeared at thisiscommonsense.org, where Paul's been writing since 1999. So the idea here is that we talk about the big stories of the week that Paul's written about. You can read those stories at thisiscommonsense.org. You can find Paul on the web at thisiscommonsense.org, but also on Facebook under Paul Jacob and also under Common Sense with Paul Jacob. And in fact, the thisiscommonsense.org website is called Common Sense with Paul Jacob. And Paul ends every commentary with, this is Common Sense, I'm Paul Jacob. Now, I don't say that because I'm not Paul Jacob, and I don't um, have common sense. So uh, we'll, we'll skip that. We're on the third full week of September 2021, and Paul is now joining us. We have five days in this week again. This has been a recurring thing since we've started this, that we have five days in each week, at least weekdays, uh, seven days otherwise. It's amazing. Anyway, we have five commentaries that I'm going to comment on uh, briefly, but I have, I, I want to get to the news we didn't cover. Okay. And I haven't, I haven't, pre-announced this with you this is like this is like live radio or television or something uh war of the worlds well let's hope not but uh but anyway this week one of the commentaries on wednesday was democracy fail we had a question mark by it this is commonsense.org i encourage you to go read it it's about the recall and we discussed this uh not at great length but it did some length last week that we were going to be talking about the recall and that people had given it a hard time. It cost money and so on. And uh, one of the points made in this commentary is that, you know, almost everything the government's doing, I'm thinking, does it really need to do that? Gosh, they're going to spend a lot of money. They don't need to spend on that. The only time I don't think that is when I'm told what the cost of an election is going to be. Now, I often think, geez, that's a lot of money. So the first part of that, I guess, is true. But I'm, uh, it's almost like I, I don't want to quibble there. Let, I'm going to spend all my fighting on other stuff and let them spend money on elections because I like elections. And uh, so the recall cost some money. The governor didn't get tossed out on his keister. And, uh, and the, the governor, because of that, is going to be a little bit more powerful probably he'll have more public esteem and may be able to get some things done that i'm sure i will be unhappy he gets done and uh but that's the way it works and and so whenever somehow democracy breaks out and there's some citizen check on government you know we have all these experts that get awfully nervous but uh i suspect that this audience, uh, as well as uh, you and I, are uh, are unfazed by all their 
their gnashing of teeth when it comes to recalls and initiatives and referendums. And so that really was the point of your Wednesday piece. Uh, it was a short and sweet. Uh, people have heard the refrain before from you, but it may not be uh, common. It's not very common to hear it at large in society, is it? No, it's not. And it's and it's funny because you know so often we're we're told that the media is just they're they're making a dollar. This is capitalism. This is the free market. And media covers things because they're trying to, you know, they hype things because they want to sell papers and advertising space on TV and radio and online. And we get all that. Um, and, and that part of it is true, obviously, but it doesn't account for how they cover different things. Um, for one, the media is incredibly hostile to um, initiative and referendum and recall it's it, it seems to be in bed with the capital people. It's that's where its bureau is covering politics. It's just it's it's uh, what's the they're embedded kind of with the government and and they're reporting shows. And it and it kind of is a, a vicious cycle, I think, because, you know, you've got more and more where. You know, journalism has become this, uh, we're going to go in and, and tell people how it is so they will vote accordingly and change the world as we want. And that's, that's the kind of journalism we're getting. And, and let's face it, you know, we always got a degree of that. Uh, and we can argue whether there's more or less. But I think the more people look and, and read and so on and, and uh, peruse the, the the media with that in mind, boy, boy, you sure do see it a lot. Well, journalists have always been crusaders, right? That's one of the reasons they gain a following, if, you know, and get news is that they make a big story and they make a big deal of it and it impresses people. In the old days, you know, when you, when you see a 1940s or a 1930s movie about journalism, you know, they're trying to usually go against the corruption of the state. That was, that's the usual theme. And it's the reporter, the dogged reporter, who is out there amongst the people trying to get people riled up and informed to oust the bad guys. That doesn't seem to be the general ethos of, uh, or method of uh, journalists today. It's hard to be a crusader for the people if you don't like the people. Um, if you if you condescend to even talk to the people, if you're constantly hyper concerned that the people may not be up to hearing all the knowledge that you have gone to the trouble of being willing to dispense to them. And so you're going to have to hold some back. And 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 that's, I think, what what shows so much. Obviously, you're going to have people who have different opinions uh, and in their own view of the world and is always going to be reflected in that. And, and media, I think it's not new that the media's, you know, trended left. It's been that way all along. Um, but I think what, what I'm beginning to notice and Tim, you, you may have beaten me to the punch here, but is that it's so statist. It's so deep statist. It's so, pro big government and expertise and and term limits we stumbled into this term limits was an issue that 
you know, wildly popular, but despised by politicians. Okay, no surprise there. But also despised by political scientists and by media for the most part. And, and broader than political scientists, I think, by academia for the most part. It was as if somehow, you know, this is arguing that here's this simple, straightforward way to address people accumulating too much power. Don't let them stay more than a little bit of time. Yeah. Everybody likes it. It's, you know, and, and of course, since they've been in, in, you know, you got 15 states that have uh, state legislative term limits. You got 36 governors who are term limited. You got city councils. You got mayors. It's got all these people who are term limited around the country. And it works. You know, they, they might want to go, oh, you know, once in a while they'll have some big study where they talk to lobbyists and lobbyists said bad things about it. Uh, you know, or something like that. But there's just, they haven't landed a glove on the reform. The reform does what it says it's going to do because, you know, it's a meat axe approach. Well, you know, meat axes sometimes work. If you're trying to chop up meat, you know, a tenderized meat, get your meat axe because, uh, and term limits is uh, a darn good meat axe as far as reforms go. The reason all of, you know, those two groups I think we're so hostile is because it threatens their view that everything is expertise and we have the expertise. We've studied longer. I've read more books than you've read. And therefore I win. I get to dictate how you live. And, and, you know, that's not where the people are. And, and we've got, we've got media crusaders um, who are who are on their own crusade? It's not the, a crusade of the people. It's interesting. After all these years of despising the people myself, I'm on the side of the people more than the elites. Uh, but uh, so there you are. And but it's mainly because the elites are so bad. It's not because the people are so good. I'm I'm more than willing to cop to that. Uh, Tim and I, for for the world to know, have had a long running, just different perspective, but. Um, but I never want to blame the people. Um, and, and, and of course, there are times where I'm sure that it could be shown. I go, okay, okay, yeah, there. But, but in general, I don't think that it, one, what's the upside? If the people are no good, we're, we're we going to get some dictator who's going to be really good. You know, history doesn't suggest that works. And so often they're lied to. Well, maybe they're naive. I mean, there's all kinds of things like that. And like I worry about, I worried about Trump doing it with, with the checks he was sending out and he wanted his signature on the check. Uh, and I worry with Biden spending all of the money he can possibly spend and just let's regularly send out checks to everybody and hope they're in need, you know, and, and all of this is, you know, people like getting money. And so it, it is scary. And so, you know, the people, the people are far from perfect. <laughs> Let me just suggest. But, um, but I've been always pushing that. And I think, Tim, you would agree that, that you look at it and say, well, the, you know, a lot of the things they're doing, the public wants them to do. And, and you know, it's, it's the Mencken uh, 
you know, democracy is getting what you deserve and getting it good and hard or something yeah. like that. Now, have we talked about the thing you wanted to talk about that you're going to spring on me? Have, we haven't got there yet. No, no. And it's not really much of a, of a spring. I've got a couple different things I wanted to, to spring, okay. but uh, I think we've, we've done democracy fail. One of the other things that I think people, uh, uh, one of the other commentaries that I would first suggest if they, if they haven't spent their entire week focused on these commentaries that they would want to go to is not in brackets, just plain bats. Um, and, and that's where we, we deal again with Peter Daszak and regular readers of Common Sense, listeners to this podcast, uh, know that he's the head of Echo Health Alliance. This is the group that got money from the NIH. They gave it to the Wuhan lab. They're doing gain of function research. And the big new thing uh, this week is that here are tapes, videotape. Let's roll the videotape of Peter Daszak talking about gain of function research. And, you know, this has been this, this whole ordeal where the Wuhan lab leak possibility can't be mentioned. It's, you know, it's some conspiracy. And of course, the only conspiracy was Peter Daszak, who was putting a piece into the Lancet, which is this respected, although let's take that away, uh, once respected, no longer respected publication, major medical publication, British and uh, so it's even more, you know, and, uh, but, but this is, uh, he gets a letter in there saying that this is all conspiracy theories and also lies and says he has no interest in, you know, no personal interest in the outcome of this, even though obviously he does. And, um, and so they've all, you know, Fauci, others have denied that, you know, there's gain of function research going on. And then they describe gain of function research. And, and there, there have been a number of people um, who have been good on the issue. Josh Rogan at the Washington Post. And it, it pains me because it's so easy to just, Washington Post never writes anything good, but they print Josh Rogan. And uh, uh, he's been very, very good on this and, and ahead of the curve. So, um, you know, there, this is, it's, it's just more evidence showing that in so many different ways, the shutting down of speech about the lab leak is wrong, is stupid, has harmed the whole look at what's going on here, all the science. And, and it is not, it is China, which is bad actor, doesn't quite give it full justice. Chinazi. That's what I call them because I think they're like the Nazis were. And, and, you know, you're not supposed to compare people to the Nazis, but if you put people in concentration camps and carry out genocide, I, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, historically, I'm just somewhat limited. They're kind of like Pol Pot, but some people might not know who he was. So uh, people know the Nazis and, and sometimes people think they're communists. So, it's, it's important that people realize they're not communists. Uh, communists aren't that efficient. Uh, so, uh, so they're not as scary as Chinazis. Anyway, yeah, they lied about it all. But they got all kinds of help yes. from our people. 
all kinds of help from our science, our big government science operation, all kinds of help from media, big media, big corporate media, all kinds of help from social media, giant, wealthy social media. So the most politically and materially, economically, money rich people basically shut down all of this along in, in keeping with, with the Chinese so that we didn't get to know things. And, and of course, who's gonna ask why? Except for crazies like you and I, Tim, because it's it's you know that's not what the media is doing. That's not what the social media is doing. Uh, this week, also something interesting came out, which throws a little cold water on my main theory, my main conjecture about it all, which is that we're at war. Um, that this was kind of deliberate on the part of somebody. I'm not sure who, but somebody wanted to unleash at that particular time. I, I may be wrong. That's that's entirely possible. But I think we should consider it because it's a possibility. And I have a theory about that. We may have talked about it. We may not have. I don't remember. But, you know, I annoy people with my theories. And one of the things that dashed water a little bit on it was the story this week that came out fairly recently, I think. Right? I just saw it like the last two days. And that theory is that China was planning on doing a, was pl planning on infecting the bat population of China with something that would prevent the development of a, uh, zoonotic origin uh, thing, just like they, they made in the lab. So that's interesting. I don't know if it's true. I mean, why would we believe liars? That's the, that's the one question you know, I think always have to ask, right? But liars almost always sometimes tell the truth, too. You know, you can't know for sure. When I think about gain-of-function research, I think of the dangers, obviously, but there is you know, there is some argument to be made that says, hey, if we can study all these and we'll be really, really careful. <laughs> and, and it's when they say that, that I kind of think, you know, <laughs> not my money, not my money. Don't put my money into it. It's an important story. And I, I hope people do uh, look at it on September 21st, not just playing bats. Yes. We should also look at um, in this whole category of, we don't talk about things uh, in, in real terms sometimes, and, and we're not allowed to talk about things. Uh, maybe Thursdays, unidentified non-disclosure, where we talk about Elon Musk and, and, and really the broader issue of the fact that so many people who have knowledge of space, who have knowledge of UFOs, are not really allowed to talk about it because they have agreements with the government and so much of it is classified. And it, it again is, you know, forces the recognition that we're not dealt with as adult citizens of a republic. We are dealt with as spectators when they want to be nice to us. And people who might be in the way when they don't want to be nice to us. So uh, uh, and, and, you know, the, the UFO stuff has always, you know, been a light kind of subject. But there is a, a there is a reality that there's some things going on that we don't quite understand. And some of us would like to think about them kind of a wisdom of crowds 
you know, let us all be, be pondering this. That's the strength of humankind. And instead, no, a small select group, and not in China, not in China. I mean, they, they probably have a small select group thinking about it too, but, but that was, that's what you'd expect in China. In the United States of America, in a democracy, um, you would expect the public to be much more informed, and yet we're not. As I understand it, in China, UFO discussion is much more free than it is in America. That is, the uh, in intelligence and the academics aren't so dead set against it. For one thing, there's a lot of video just came out from these last several weeks of UFOs sitting over Shanghai and in Beijing, uh, huge uh, pyramidal structures sitting in the clouds. People can't capture on their uh, iPhones and send it in, and it, you know, it's awfully weird. I don't know what to say about it, but it, it does look like something, and the Chinese seem to be interested in the, in the subject. And so we, when you look at conspiracy theories and the idea of the Chinese government getting involved in the subject, it doesn't make me feel any better. Yeah. There is that. Uh, anyway, we'll see how that goes. We also had, uh, on Monday, uh, charges dropped, uh, which was a piece about Shannon Joy, who does a radio show and is a uh, uh, well went to comment at her school's uh, you know she's a Rochester New York and uh, went to comment at the PTA meeting I guess uh, or the school board meeting I stand corrected um, and was basically arrested and they ended up dropping charges and and not going forward <clears throat> with any uh, any criminal penalties. It was kind of rough treatment, right? Exactly. It was it was rough treatment. And and the truth is, Tim, um, you know, most people I've been arrested um, a couple of times uh, and and it's not fun. And it's it's. Uh, it's like a, <clears throat> you ever hear the term country club prisons. Um, nobody who's ever been to prison uses that term. Um, it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, torturous and like some terrible, you know, it doesn't have to be Midnight Express, the movie I've never seen actually, but I, I know the plot um, for, you know, to be a bad scene. They couldn't treat you nice enough at a place where they're incarcerating you to make it okay. And um, so it's, it's, you just don't want to do that to arrest people when you don't need to. And it's like, you, you hear about this from time to time. They, they go to some school and arrest some eight-year-old, 11-year-old, 13-year-old. And you know there can be times where maybe that's what you have to do. But gee whiz, you sure would never want to do it if you didn't have to. And we're seeing this more and more. And I think people are getting rowdier. I, I wouldn't be surprised by that. You hear the stuff in airplanes. I haven't ever seen it. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of flights and I'm sure it happens. And of course, there you're being, you're being pushed into some tiny seat, you know, and, and is somewhat torturous conditions. and and the way our society is going, you know, people will tend to erupt if they're, you know, the, the freedom is a great release valve to, to kind of make it to where people don't blow up 
Because they, they don't have anybody to blow up to. If they're being mistreated, they have reason to be blowing up. And in a world where we're talking about passports to travel from state to state, city to city, or to your local grocery, then I would see where people would be awfully testy. I think that actually it's more than testy is required. And so that's going to get awfully uh, touchy here. We had that incident uh, this week at, at a place in New York. Uh, and we, we've talked some about New York. There was an incident uh, where fisticuffs, uh, people were arrested, um, slugging the uh, person at the, you know, the reception person at the, at the restaurant, supposedly over asking about uh, vaccine permits or vaccine uh, passports. Is that the one that turned BLM against the vaccine passports? Yeah, well, I don't know. I didn't see that part of the story. Um, I saw that there was a BLM protest there yeah. the next day. Yeah. And, but it seemed to be against that restaurant. And and it's still not clear, you know, I think what actually happened there. And, and uh, it, it, this is one place when there are incidents like this, I wish everybody uh, would kind of wait to find out what actually happened before they decide who did what um, because it's because who knows it could have been somebody could have been really rude it had had nothing to do it could have been about what table instead of vaccine passports but once we find out the facts i think we can say right off the bat they're probably going to have to ask what table you want they don't have to ask about vaccine passports and and again i don't have anything against a restaurant that wants to do that but i do have something against the government trying to force people to do that and it's it's a uh, you know there's there's a level of something we haven't talked about is uh maybe we, maybe we'll talk about it this next week is the irs agents you know biden wants to more than double the irs agents we want a lot more searching into what people are doing. They're talking about making it that at a certain point, they'd be able to go into your, to get your bank information of the total amount deposited and total amount withdrawn. Um, and, you know, just the totals. Well, you know, you know how much of my bank information they deserve without probable cause and a warrant? is zero and uh and of course they're, they're not coming after me if i can if i could just have some more successful years maybe uh they'll, they'll be after me but it, you know this this whole great government where it's going to give you everything there's there's other sides to it and and we're going to see them and uh and again this is this like so many things it's not you know, there's a there's a partisan divide. And we get to the last commentary uh, combating campus cancel culture. Uh, that's much more something going on on the left. But but the financial stuff, the big government stuff has been a bipartisan. This is politicians against the people. And most of the issues, I think, of consequence come down to politicians versus the people. There are some of consequence. I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the racist, uh, vicious anti, supposedly anti-racism that goes around, uh, which is part of canceling people on, on campus and uh, sanctioning them and getting them fired and don't say the wrong thing. <clears throat> 
that is that is certainly coming much much more from the from the left although you do have people on the on the right who you know if you say something you know you didn't stand for the for the national anthem at some ball game you know you should be fired as a professor and that sort of thing um it's you know that that's that's not pretty i occasionally think that some things are beyond the pale and every marxist professor in, in america should be uh, fired I, I i have a hard time not believing that so i i, I, I can sympathize <laughs> i have a rule online is that i don't argue with marxists because i, I believe that there's some things we can argue about but marxism isn't one of them and so uh, it's, a, it's just a line that i won't cross yeah it does seem like a waste of time you know it's yeah. like it's like uh surely you'll just at some point fall on the other side of that line i don't i don't have to spend my good time trying to get you to but yeah. uh but you know there is i think a uh uh, and, and one of the things we point out in this piece is... That is the Friday piece, combating campus cancel culture, right? Yes, lots of Cs. We want to make choices about where we go to school that would, that would not exacerbate this problem. And it might mean not going to an Ivy. Uh, which they seem to have this much more than than others, although others do, and it's it's somewhat uh, it's somewhat pervasive. Uh, so it's it's difficult. I mean, we suggest to people that they take it into account, but um, I you know I was rereading it today, and I was thinking, you know, it's not easy to find it. I mean, it, you could go to to uh, Hillsdale. Uh, uh, you know, there's a few different schools where they've they've kind of you know, made a statement. I'm sure there's a lot more that I don't know about that have made some pro First Amendment statement. But you have so much uh, of that across the board, and you have it. You know, you you don't see local uh, K through 12 schools with agendas that again that aren't on the left. They're almost all on the left. When you find that they have a clear agenda. Uh, we had the the uh, project Veritas. Uh, uh, we did a commentary on that about the the you know school teacher who basically you know was uh, was actively trying to get students to be communist and uh, kind of hate America and oh, yeah. he had his, he had his whole had had a whole kind of spiel about you know and he used fear and I mean he was he was a sick puppy to to be straight about it. It's been a long time since I've been to uh, high school, just K-12, and I remember my history teachers, and they were circumspect. I mean, they had their opinions, and you could pull it out of them if you, you know, pride, but you know, you had to pull it out of them. I mean, one of them, I, know, I really know what her politics were, and she was one of them I didn't get along with much, but nevertheless, I kind of have a respect for them more now that we have distance and a lot of communists in between us. I have a grade school and junior high and high school teachers. Uh, and I could usually tell if they liked F FDR or they didn't like FDR. Uh, I'm on the don't like FDR side. And, and so I could tell that too. But, but I noticed that, uh, um, geez, I wonder, she's got to be 90 years old. But uh, Mrs. Morgan, and I'm getting old enough that I can't remember. She may have passed away. Oh, I wish I knew. Uh, but anyway, 
wonderful woman. Uh, we disagreed on everything politically, everything politically, but she was a great teacher. Um, she cared about the subject. She didn't, it didn't bother her that somebody disagreed and somebody saw it a different way. Uh, and, and she worked as like a poll worker until she was in her late eighties. And anyway, she's, uh, uh, but, but, you know, that's someone who I kind of look at that way. Um, when I got to college, um, I can remember saying to my mom, well, all my, all my professors are communists and are going, Paul, don't quit being so silly, kind of thinking that I'm, you know, I'm saying they're all communist hyperbolically. Uh, no, no. Uh, you know, one was trying to form a young socialist alliance on the, I'm trying to form a young libertarian alliance on the campus of Westminster. And, and uh, you know, and, and my political theory professor said that he basically crude communism, what they have in the, in the Soviet Union was what he thought probably made the most sense as, as the right government. <laughs> Your eyes are getting big. And that's, that's the way my eyes got to, I thought. You know, you have a lot of choices. You know, he was somebody who's reading, who was it, Marcuse or something. You know, he has all these, these uh, highfalutin French, you know, Marxist, you know, uh, prophets of, of uh, destruction who, uh, you know, he could have chosen some, somebody else. But instead, it's like, no, I like the, the just the gross, horror, horrific thing going on in the Soviet Union. That's what I like. But anyway, uh, but that, that's been going on for a long time. And, and, uh, and of course, you know, I really enjoyed learning about Marxism and, and, uh, you know, because it was, it, somehow it got my juices flowing in terms of when I would read, read somebody I didn't like, I would, I would find that fascinating unless it was really stupid. But, um, but so, you know, I think, you know, it's not bad to learn from folks and, and, and you might want, you know, you might want some, maybe some token uh, Marxist professors instead of every professor being a Marxist professor. Right. Well, I read Proudhon and Marx before I read any other economists, right? So I read a critiques of capitalism before I read any of the capitalist economists, uh, if we can call them that. And, uh, so in a sense, my animus here, my antagonism is born of trying to make sense of these fellows. Marx was especially egregious, I thought. I thought he was actually, you could tell from his, even his scholarly writing that he was a nasty man. And I think that that's really clear. Uh, Proudhon was an interesting fellow. I, I must say, I kind of liked Proudhon, though he was way too flowery and he got very weird, but it's nevertheless an interesting fellow. But then, but then I actually read Real Economics, and Real Economics doesn't look like either of those writings. Right, right. But in a sense, I, I have actually revived uh, my interest in Proudhon. Uh, he's the one who basically gave us the idea of the contradictions of capitalism, of that idea. And I think that his basic analysis, if you just tweak it a little bit, his basic analysis applies so well to the consumerist culture of the welfare state. So I think that nearly everything he said and much of what Marx said that kind of resonates with you and that there's something wrong in, our, in the moral order of the universe and how we're thinking about things. Yeah, it applies to this world as it is with a welfare state and lots and lots of government. And I think there's a reason for that. And actually, they would have understood it if they just could have gotten over their, their love for this, of remaking the world. Yes, yeah. 
just because you don't need to hear much else when you know they want to remake the world and, and don't have any respect for what's gone before they you know and and not that you know I've, I've never been one to like oh well they've done it this way a lot of times so let's just keep doing it that way but but to have no respect for that and to remake the world is is uh, well and and partly because of how they've remade the world right the folks using marx and using communism as the way to remake the world is, you know, you look at Cambodia and China and Russia and, you know, it's, it's ugly. But, but even America has deep-rooted problems that I think come from the basic structure of the world they created as progressives. I think that I think that's there. I think it's a real problem. I think we have alienation. I think we have the contradictions involved with, uh, I think there's an alienation between producer and consumer these two roles we have, which in economics is always separated out kind of in separate roles. But in reality, and as capitalism was evolving, everyone's a producer and everyone's a consumer. And the thing about the welfare state is that it encourages us to think only as consumers, is that you're then guaranteed an income. And therefore, at that point, something goes really haywire in the brain. I think that people become less good people. You and I, and you kind of helped me through it. Uh, I got interested in the universal basic income and, uh, and kind of thought through it and, and had some attraction to it in the sense that I hate that somebody who does something productive might end up losing money because they lose benefits because they're making some money, you know. Uh, but in the end, it was just the, the optics are just ugly, ugly, ugly. And this it's the money grows on trees. Um, but I want to this is somewhat tangential to this or somewhat connected. But there was one thought this week. And I wanted to remind people that every day we have a thought, uh, somebody's great statement about something that uh, is political and, and thoughtful, not always super political. This week, there was one by Lord Acton um, that I think is really interesting. And, and that's what I wanted to uh, throw at you. Uh, oh, okay. uh, and I'm, I know you're familiar with it because, of course, you're looking at these and, and uh, making the decision a, a lot of times on what, you know, what, what quotes we should have. And, and, uh, and Lord Acton says the most certain test by which we judge whether a country is really free is the amount of security enjoyed by minorities. And I think, um, I, I think it's very easy to look at it and go, oh, well, how, do we, how does the US rate? That's kind of question number one. Because I mean, this is different. This isn't just freedom for most people or whatever, but, but minorities. Uh, the, the, the second question I think, or the second thing that comes to my mind is the amount of security. This is, he doesn't, he doesn't say freedom. He says the amount of security and that's, there's a, there's a level of, you know, you, you might have all kinds of economic freedom, but if you're afraid you're going to be lynched, if you're afraid you're going to be oh, beaten oh. up. Uh, you know, that's, 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 it pales. Uh, and, and so, uh, no, no pun intended. Um, and, and so this is, I think it's a really interesting construct. And I would, I would argue 
that uh, it is an important way to look at it and to look at it from different minorities' perspectives. And then I also think another factor to consider is most people who are traveling around the world, the, the, you know, the, the great migrations, they are minorities when they get where they're going. And where are they going? And they are going primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to the West, not just the US, but also to Europe. Uh, although Europe is kind of more of a new phenomena of being welcoming in that way. And, and I don't know that they were unwelcoming particularly. It just seems like, you know, they were they were shedding excess population to the U.S. A lot of times they weren't. It didn't seem like there was uh, any great, you know, uh, mobilization of people from Africa or Asia into Europe. Um, but but anyway, that's, uh, I think, also a, a really important factor, because, of course, you know, you might go someplace because there's there's certain you know, wealth there, but if you're not secure, uh, you don't feel secure, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be traveling across the world to get to someplace to feel insecure. And uh, so anyway, I just thought that was a very interesting quote and, a, and a, a really good way to look at, at real freedom. Well, I'd like to say two things about it because two things come immediately to mind. The first is that security is about freedom, is that you wanna be secure in your person and property. So a lynch mob or a murderer, they both rid yourself of your life or your freedom, and that's what they're doing. And a security is basically when you have some defense or where that doesn't even happen, that's security. And so when, let's say an economist like Gustav de Molinari, he talked about the production of security. And he thought that was a commodity like other commodities, and that that's something that uh, should be produced by society. That's definitely the case. We want, that's the thing we want most. But he wasn't talking about security of your fortunes throughout life. He was talking about your basic securities and your basic freedoms. And that's what he was talking about. And I think Lord Acton was too. I, I read all through Lord Acton's major works a few years ago when I wrote an introduction to a collection of his writings. It's a very interesting writer. The other thing that comes to mind is is the idea of democracy. Because when we think of democracy, many people, many of our friends, define democracy as the tyranny of the majority or the rule of the minorities by the majority. But that doesn't quite hold true because every democracy has this problem, is that it's not a democracy if the minorities are destroyed by the majorities, right? And on issue by issue, there are majorities and minorities, and most people follow are in a minority in one issue and a majority on another. So this whole thing is that a democracy really does, is defined by the protection of minorities. So that means that a democracy to, to express the will of the majority, whatever that is, has to include the will to protect minorities. And it's not a democracy when minorities aren't protected. And that's just, even if they're voting, I would argue that Athenian democracy wasn't a democracy because only a very few people voted and they had slaves, women had no, almost no say except for Demosthenes' lover, uh, or as a Pericles lover, Pericles lover, and so forth. She was basically a courtesan that he promoted to a very powerful social place, which was a scandal at its time. Uh, but, uh, and I forget what, who it was, but it was one of the leaders of Athens. But anyway, it's just interesting that I think democracy 
is kind of an ideal that people don't grasp because if they parody the ideal, like just, you know, it's the rule of majorities, majority rule. Well, I don't think majority rule defines democracy. I don't think that's true. I think majority rule is a bad definition of democracy. And, and one of the definitions of democracy is the protection of minorities. I have found that very comforting that all around the world, people who talk about democracy define it that way, um, but create brackets around it that way. Uh, it's really important. And here's another, I think, practical importance. Uh, Ed Crane, that used to head the Cato Institute, uh, wrote something years ago where he said, you know, it seems to matter way too much who gets elected president. And we really should live in a, in a system in which it just doesn't matter. This guy's going to execute the laws that Congress is making and so on, but it just shouldn't matter that much because things should be set by public desires and, and, you know, and elections and so on. And of course, now it matters a whole lot. And, and you know, it's been pretty vicious politically my entire time in Washington, starting in 1990. Was it 1990, 1991? And, uh, but who's counting? And, uh, but, but the whole time it's been vicious politically. It hasn't been vicious for the average person. And what's a little scary is to see it get vicious for the average person, to see people who are good people and are not even that political, but it's almost like do it to them who they, uh, those people on the other side, them, them, and and I'm. This is both sides who want to just we we create these straw men, and then we want them beaten up and arrested and and reeducated and all those things that you know. At, at the end of an election, there should be none of that, and uh, it it goes back to to some degree, and it's not just uh, it, it probably isn't the only case of it, but the whole uh, Hillary. I think there was a certain, you know, populist and a certain uh, uh, justification to the locker up. People felt like this person has just skated everything. Finally, we're going to get a sheriff in town who will lock her up. But it was ugly, too. Ugly in the sense that, you know, kind of some mass desire to lock somebody up. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's not the, you know, and... Uh, Although there is a certain, you know, if, if there is a certain justice that people do want justice, the majority does want justice, but it, it uh, I, I never liked the, the lock it up chance, lock her up chance. I kind of liked him uh, because I thought that, I thought with the nomination of Hillary Clinton, the Democrats had gone, finally gone too far. They knew that one quarter of American people hated Hillary Clinton with a passion. So that meant that they were willing to foist upon the American people a person that was most hated of all their candidates. That was a breach. That was a breach of decorum. There was, I don't know if there's ever been a case other than Abraham Lincoln where somebody who was roundly hated was, was put to the top. Had the same kind of numbers. I mean, that's, it's amazing how, how much their numbers were alike. In terms that's of the, both with higher negatives and po positives, and and Trump actually had higher name recognition, higher name recognition than Hillary Clinton. So it was a it was a really interesting situation that we had, and it was that that you know the country didn't particularly like either of these people, 
And that's the what the Democrats, we've talked about this before on the podcast, they, they circled the wagons to put Biden in, I think knowing that Biden was not really up to it, but that he was the only person who didn't have negatives. I don't know why not, because he's like, he's like, you know, his, his criminal justice record is, his everything record, his not being able to tell the truth or not, you know, plagiarize. Or, or his corrupt son. Uh... Yes, well, by the way, but that was, that was shut down. People weren't, weren't supposed People to didn't... know that. But they now admit it. A political just came out with a story that admitted that the the laptop was his laptop, blah, blah, blah. But they're still not really talking about the emails. That clearly implicate Joe Biden. And instead of asking Biden about it and demanding answers about it, instead they're, they'd rather just say, well, there's no evidence. Well, there's no evidence because you're sitting on your keister, buddy. Go ask some questions. And this, the news media is just the, one of the most pathetic episodes. And, and how do you forget that in the heat of a campaign, you've got this deep state lie about the Hunter laptop and the Russian disinformation carried by all the players. You have the taxpayer subsidized federal media operation, NPR, basically saying, hey, we're not going to cover this. Um, this is, you know, it's just, they can, they're not going to be trusted again. We had a comment uh, on, on uh, one of the pieces this week that uh, basically said, look, um, you know, the, the, nobody's going back to trusting the media. It's going to be a long time before anybody will. And that's, that's good. That's good. It's it's kind of sad, but it's it's reality. It's what we shouldn't have been trusting them at any time, but now it's just yeah beyond obvious. We'll see how it goes with the unraveling of the COVID nightmare, because what's going to happen if if things go the way I think that they could possibly go well is that people will increasingly see that it's nonsense. That is that the that the official responses almost the world over have been bad, that the, the media-sponsored, government-sponsored response to the disease that came out of China was horribly wrong and was not good for our health. And they're pushing something that probably isn't good for our health either. And if that unravels like I think it's going to, um, that might actually unravel some of the power, not only of the state, but also of the, of the press. It may. I'm not betting on it. I'm not really where you're at in terms of, of expecting anything like that. And I think it's already unraveled to a degree that anyone can see. You know, I don't know how anyone can argue, well, we've got to get controls on social media so there's not misinformation. The only misinformation is the shutting down of actual information by these people colluding between government and, and uh you know, social media and the media. It's, it's, this is a, is a really dangerous situation. And, and it may be that it leads to more catastrophic things, but I don't think it has to for us to, you know, for intelligent people to look at it and say, okay, we now know, uh, a friend of mine said this to me a few years ago, we're behind enemy lines. And that's, that it's an important thing to realize if it's true. 
we are behind enemy lines. And, and the, one of the good things that I think was learned during the Trump craziness for four years, and that's that the media, the limits to the media's power, that understanding that people can read through the lines and that you can be slammed saying something, but if you can still get your message out, people will hear it. Uh, that's, I think that's really going to be critical. And I think smart people, um, you know, will be able to, to read through the lines. They already know that their, you know, their media is for the most part, not telling them the, the whole story. Well, that's certainly true. I think that until American people realize the connections between the deep state and the media, we're not going to get anywhere on that ground. Uh, that's still not really well known. I don't think the people who learned the most important thing about the Trump years, as far as I'm concerned, is that people who thought that reforming, you know, draining the swamp was going to be just a case of putting the right person in office, they know that's not true anymore. They know that the deep state fights back. And so they don't trust the deep state. And that's good. But they don't know just how powerful I think the deep state is. And I don't either, because I don't really know all that much about it. But it looks pretty obvious to me with the Mockingbird uh, efforts in the 60s and 70s. And then there's deep ties between the CIA and other major intelligence groups and major media, the legacy media. They certainly have information that the media wants. If it were just, just the natural draw and connection that could flower into all kinds of things, some helpful, some not so helpful at all. And, and I think we see much more than just that subtle kind of, hey, you have stories, please give them to us and then we'll, we'll be thankful. But, but in this last go round, there's been no, no real mainstream media uh, acknowledgement that yes, we got this badly 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 wrong well, sure. because because it almost be yes right before the election we really really steered people away from the truth that's what we did well that sounds like we covered uh, a week of september 2021 all right thank you sir and thank everyone for listening